I'm going to go ahead and ask Tim if he will come up and read our scripture reading. Our uh, scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, and then we're going to have a skip, and then from verses 18 through 22. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Then skipping down to verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father God, we thank you again for this time. God, as we open up your word, as we begin to look into it. Um, Father, I know many of us have uh, carried concerns about uh, various things going on in our culture right now between COVID, between uh, the election, between um, the, the violence and, and rioting that we see in our streets. Um, God, uh, added into all that the normal um, difficulties of, of our daily lives, of finances, of families, of, of loved ones who, um, who are sick from, from possibly COVID, but, but the, the normal things, the, the things that we've come to expect that people are always sick of, of uh, cancer and, uh, and heart disease and, and all kinds of other things, God. Um, we know that we come to this time uh, with, with cares on our hearts, God. And so what we ask is that as we, as we open up your word, God, that you would use, that, use it to, um, God, show us maybe the most important thing um, that there is to know, and that is who is the Messiah and what is a Messiah? What has Jesus Christ come to do? Um, and, and God, that unique mission that he has, that he has accomplished, um, God, how that changes our lives, how it changes our worries, how it changes the way, um, that, that we live on a daily basis because of who he is. Um, God, help us to see that as we open up your word. Father, as always, we need uh, you um, to shine light on your scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we need you to shine light on our hearts so that so that we don't just hear these things and not just hear and understand, but hear them and understand them and apply them and live them out 
um, God, that these things become rooted in us. Um, they are not abstract truths that we hold in the back of our minds, but they are the things that we rest our lives on. Father, help us to do that um, as, we, as we open your word today uh, and look into your scriptures. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so so we began. Uh, Tim um, opened us up with with uh, the, that reading from from Luke chapter nine, and we talked about how if you've been watching on Zoom or Facebook Live a couple of weeks ago, we skipped over verses seven, eight, and nine, and I mentioned the fact that those were going to we were going to come back to those because they made more sense connecting into this other other section. Well, we we're at that other section now, and essentially what we see in that passage is that. The, the, the news about who Jesus is is getting out. Like people are starting to hear about Jesus. It's not just, uh, the blind and the lepers and, and, and the common people who are coming to, for help to Jesus, right? We find out in this passage that all the way up to Herod the Tetrarch, who is, who is the, the king of one of those regions, um, that, that you remember the Roman Empire had come in and, and taken over control of the whole region, but then they had sort of farmed out, um, uh, rule to a couple of local ethnarch type people, people who were Jewish in, in ancestry or, or from some other, um, uh, ethnicity around that region and made those people the, the, uh, kings of their little regions. And so Herod the Tetrarch, this is the Herod who had John the Baptist executed. And so he is now hearing about Jesus and asking the question, who is this guy? Like, who's this guy that I hear about doing these things and teaching these things? Um, uh, who is he? And that sort of sets up this question that we are asking is of, of what is a Messiah? That's key in this passage. Because basically the section that we are at is in many ways kind of a pivot section for the book of Luke. This is one of the key passages in the gospel narrative in general because it's the place where... Uh, the Apostle Peter confesses Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Okay, so with, as we've as we've been seeing up until this point, lots of people are asking this question: Who is this Jesus person? John the Baptist was a was a famed and, and respected prophet, right? And and he said he pointed to Jesus and said, "He's the one you need to follow, not me. He is the one who was to come." Um, Jesus is going around and preaching, and he's preaching with authority, and everybody seems to recognize that from, from the Pharisees down to the common person. And yet, that teaching that he is teaching kind of flies in the face of, of tradition and of culture and of, of the ways that people had previously done things. Um, Jesus is doing these miracles and miraculously providing for people. Um, he heals people of all kinds of diseases, uh, the deaf and the blind and the lame and, and lepers. Um, people who have been mute their entire lives speak. Even demons, as we've talked about, submit to his command. The forces of nature halt when Jesus speaks, and ultimately, he even has power over death. And as Jesus is doing all these things, the people, all the way up to the king, are saying, who is this guy? Like, who is this guy, and, 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 and what is, what's going on here? So despite what we have talked about, that idea of the messianic secret, you remember that, um, we've, we've hit it a couple of times through the Gospels, the fact that Jesus has, up until this point, kind of when somebody, when he'd done a miracle or something, he would say, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Just kind of keep it quiet. And, and, and we ask the question, why? Well, it's, it's getting to the point now where what we think was going on is that Jesus was trying to slow down 
the the fervor behind his his sort of rise in his ascendancy now it's it's about too late right people know everybody's heard about him and, and the energy um, to push him uh, into the to the positions that they want him to be in we're, we're coming to that now okay and so in this pivotal section Herod is asking who is this man and he's saying, who do the people say that this man is, right? And we get kind of the same answer that we see in a second um, when Jesus himself asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? But here's the deal, and this is kind of the, 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 the layout for what we're going to talk about. The reality is, is this. Jesus is, first off, he is more than they think he is, but he is also less than they think he is. And in many ways, he is the opposite of what they think he is. Okay, so let's begin there in verse 18 with the idea that he is more than they think he is. So it says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So, so the people's appraisal of who Jesus was is, if you think about it, it, it's it's pretty good. Uh, it's not negative, certainly. Um, in fact, it's it's kind of complimentary. You would almost say um, they say that he's a great prophet, like like one of the prophets from the Old Testament, Elijah, or one of these other prophets. Some people are even saying he's he's like John the Baptist, who is in in their time the most celebrated prophet that's that's come in a long time. Because remember, there had been no prophets for four hundred years up until this point. Right? So when we go through the Old Testament, you're reading the narrative of the Old Testament, about every generation, God has a prophet there to bring the word of the Lord to the people. And yet now there has been a 400-year gap where there has been no prophet of God. And now, in a very short time, two great prophets have arisen, John the Baptist, and now here we have Jesus. Jesus, who John said was even greater than John, Okay. And so, in fact, what we find is, as we look at this, they're not wrong. Jesus is a great prophet. They're partially correct. Jesus is a great prophet. Jesus fulfills those those roles that we talk about all the time of the fact that the Old Testament foretold and, and gave us pictures of these, these three and sort of four ordained roles, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And then there's this other one that's kind of the role of the sage or the wise man. And, and we see the connection there between Solomon and his wisdom and the wisdom literature in the scriptures. Jesus, in fact, is, is becoming the fulfillment of all those things, right? He is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the ultimate wise man, right? But again, he is not just a prophet. Jesus is more than they think he is. And that is key to the whole issue and key to the people's understanding of him. Because here's what they're basically saying. The people are saying Jesus is a great prophet of God, to be sure. But he's no different than Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Nathan or any of those other prophets that we see in Scripture. In essence, they're saying, this is great. We're glad that God has sent another prophet but we've seen something like this before. We've seen a prophet of God like this before. And honestly, here's the deal. I want you to think about that concept for a second. The idea that if Jesus was there, the people look at him, again, not, not, they're not rejecting him exactly. They're just sort of thinking that he's much like the other prophets that they've already seen. And I would argue that in some ways that's the most close 
way of characterizing what the modern or secular or sort of the spiritual, the, the, the spiritualist view of Jesus is, right? The idea that, yeah, Jesus is a great teacher. He's obviously a person who is connected to the great spirit in the sky or, or whatever. Um, and ultimately we should listen to some of the things he says, but, but he's no different fundamentally than Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad or Confucius, right? He's more of the same thing that we've seen. He's got some wisdom there. We should probably listen to him on some of these things, but he's, he's, he's just more of the same. Okay. That's well, I think how the people are seeing him. That's what we see in their responses. Well, he's like Elijah. He's like uh, one of the other prophets. He's like John the Baptist, except here's the thing. That idea is, is one of the great offenses of Christianity. The idea that Jesus is more than just a prophet, more than just a teacher, more than just a wise man is one of the two great offenses of the Christian message. Because again, the world is fine with Jesus as long as he will simply be part of the pantheon of other religious leaders throughout history. Right. As long as he can just step in and, and give a little bit of wisdom and you can take it or leave it, then then everybody's OK with Jesus. Recognize the fact that the early Christians would not allow Jesus to be that they would not accept that Jesus was just another prophet is what was getting them killed in the first century. Right. It is the reason why they were being fed to lions. It is the reason why they were being covered in tar and pitch and being lit on fire like tiki torches in, in Nero's garden parties. OK, that's the reason they were dying, not because they said all the other things about who Jesus was. Right. The Romans didn't have a problem with the idea of a God who took on flesh or a God who was born of a virgin or really a God who died on a cross or even a God who rose from the dead. They didn't have a problem with those ideas. That wasn't why they didn't like Christians. What they had a problem with, with was the fact that Christians said, he's not just another man. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another God. So no, I can't celebrate with you at your annual fertility festival. Because Jesus isn't okay with that, and it's not just, it's, he's not just another God that I can add in. And I can't eat these foods that are sacrificed to idols um, in your temples. Uh, and I can't bow down and worship Caesar every year to show my allegiance to him as a divine being and my allegiance to the Roman Empire. Because Jesus is not like the others. He's different from all of these. Okay, and so if, if you look out there in the Christian literature right now, and really for probably the past 20 or 30 years, um, there's a lot of books out there that talk about this, this crisis that is the church is in because people seem to like Jesus. They just don't like the church. They don't like institutional religion. They don't like um, organized uh, Christianity or something like that. And, and my answer is, well, of course they don't. Of course, they like this guy who they know very little about, who who told everybody to be cool, you know, love each other, drink a little bit of wine sometimes. Um, he had some nice wisdom that he could kind of throw out that proverbial kind of stuff that sounds good. He watched out for the little guy. He wanted to help people, free him from oppression. And like all the other dead prophets, he doesn't ask a single thing of you. You can just take what you like and leave the rest. Of course, people love that Jesus. Except here's the problem. 
that Jesus doesn't exist. That's not a real Jesus. That's certainly not the Jesus that we see in the scriptures. No, Jesus is a prophet, but he is more than a prophet. He is more than what they think he is. But paradoxically, he is also less than what they think he is. Look at verse 20. It says, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Okay, that word Christ is, is the same word for Messiah, right? It's the word for the anointed one. It is the word for this, this person that the Jews believed God was going um, uh, to send to rescue them from your oppression. This is, again, like we said, the great confession of Peter, right? This is the turning point of the, of the, the book because we have known this from the beginning because we could see behind the curtain, right? We knew that Jesus' uh, uh, conception was, uh, was uh, miraculous. We knew that the, these little things that we have seen that, that the rest of the people in the story don't know. But this is the first time that somebody from his, his inner group has said, no, we know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one who is supposed to come. And it's kind of surprising that Peter would say that, right? Because pretty much up until this point, it has been story after story of the disciples and the Pharisees and really everybody around Jesus missing the point, like not understanding who he is and what he can do um, and all those things. And now out of nowhere, like Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, we know why that is. Matthew tells us why that is. Jesus says, after Peter confesses it in the book of Matthew, he says, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did, okay? Peter wasn't just the smart one of the group who figured it out on his own, right? The Bible says is that, that Peter was shown this, right? He understood this because God revealed it to him. Luke doesn't share um, that part of the story, but, but Matthew and Mark do. Luke does, though, tell us how Jesus responds to Peter's confession. What does it say in verse 21? It says, he strictly charged them and commanded them not to tell anybody this. Okay, so again, that's that, that weird idea. We're like, why would Jesus not want people to know that he was the Messiah if he is the Messiah? That idea of the messianic secret. Just like when people called him a prophet, Jesus, the, the reason why he doesn't want people go around saying we found the Messiah, the, we found the Messiah, is because he knows that they don't understand what a Messiah really is. They don't understand what the Messiah has actually actually come to do. Right? What they don't realize is that Jesus is less than what they think he is. He's not going to live up to the things that they hope Jesus is going to be. Everybody thought they knew what a Messiah was going to do and going to be like. And as we've said probably over many times over the course of, you know, this, this concept comes up a lot in a lot of different places. But the, 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 the Jews thought that the Messiah was going to be a conquering king, that he was going to overthrow the oppressive rule of the Romans, that he was going to return Israel to its glory, to its autonomous sovereignty under God. And Jesus knew that if he openly claimed the role of Messiah, that people would rise up and push him forward as a military, political kind of leader. The problem is, is that everyone be willing and happy and eager to accept him as Messiah as long as he was the kind of Messiah that they wanted him to be. Now, the perfect example of that is when Jesus comes into Jerusalem 
during the last week of his life, during Holy Week, right? On, on Palm Sunday, he rides in, and what are the people saying? Glory to God in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Kings. They are, they are ushering him in um, to Jerusalem as the coming king, right? Seven days later, what are they saying? Crucify him, crucify him. Give us the, the, the rebel, give us the insurrectionist Barabbas. We'd rather have him. He's the kind of guy we're looking for, the kind of guy who's going to actually do something against the Roman Empire, the kind of guy who will cut a guy's throat in an alley somewhere because it's what's best for Israel and it's against Rome. That's who we want. This Jesus guy, you can do whatever you want with him because he's not the kind of Messiah that we're looking for. Jesus was not who they expected him to be. They wanted a king. They wanted a conquering king. And guess what? He's going to be that one day. All right? We go to the book of Revelation, and we see that magnificent passage in Revelation 19 about Jesus showing up on a white horse. Right? And if you've ever read a fantasy novel or, or watched any kind of story, you know what it means when somebody shows up on the white horse. Okay? They are the, they're the hero. They're the conquering hero. And so Revelation 19 tells us this. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by and the name by which he, he is called is the word of God. And armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? I mean, Jesus comes in tatted up, right, with these names all on him, right, swinging a sword, shooting laser beams out of his eyes or whatever, and we go, man, that's the king that I want. That's the one I want. All this nonsense in our world and all these sinful people manipulating everything, that's the kind of Messiah that I'm looking for, right? The problem is, is it's not yet. We don't have that Messiah yet. He's coming, but not yet. And here's the deal, man. I, I got to say, and I don't want to, I don't want to be political, right? But do you think the people who stormed the Capitol are not thinking in these terms, right? They're thinking in these terms of saying, I want a conquering king. I want somebody who says, forget the system. I'm coming in there and I'm taking over and I'm doing what I'm going to do because it's good and right and I'm, we're going to win this thing. The Jews wanted a figurehead. They wanted someone to represent their political, social, and military goals. And again, we do that every day in politics. Both sides sometimes wave the Jesus flag and say, uh, man, Jesus gives authority or validity or the moral high ground to my cause. Jesus is on my side. But the problem is, is that Jesus isn't an elephant and he's not a donkey and he's not a mascot. Now, again, I'm not saying that all the issues that come along with those things aren't important. Man, I don't think Jesus is partisan. But I think he cares very much about the individual issues, right? When we talk about um, uh, the abortion issue, right? When we talk about um, issues of that weight, of, of, the, of the murder of children, okay? Jesus cares about that stuff. 
So I'm not saying that Jesus is just separate from all these things, but he isn't your political mascot. Jesus didn't come to save the world by conquering it, or at least not yet. He came to convert our world. The gospel is a spiritual revolution in our lives, not a political revolution. No, for now, Jesus is less than what they expected him to be, right? He's more than a prophet, but he's less than this Messiah that they had hoped for. And yet, at the same time, uh, he's completely the opposite of everything that they thought he was going to be. So verse 21. It says, he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one and saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The Messiah has not come to conquer. He will suffer. He will be rejected and he will die. And you see the Messiah's appointed task is actually the exact opposite of what the people want from him. They don't want a Messiah that dies. They want a Roman Empire that dies, right? They want a Messiah that kills, not a Messiah that dies. Jesus has shown his power already, right? He's shown his authority over all these things. But now he begins to show us that his power and his authority will not be used in the way that seems logical to the people of Israel. The Jews, again, had not associated the Messiah with the character that we see in the book of Isaiah that, that, that we have come to call the suffering servant. Okay, So for some reason... And again, it, it depends on which tradition you look at, and there's all these different ideas. These are prophetic passages. So the Jewish people were doing the same thing that kind of we do about prophecy, right? Some people have this idea, and some people have this, and there were all these different ideas going around, right? But when you read the book of Isaiah, you see these passages between chapter 42 and 52 of this character who we've come to call the suffering servant. We see this idea of this, this man who is a leader of Israel, but who will be rejected by Israel, okay? But for some reason, the Jewish people had not made that step of connection, right? And I think at the very least we can say, maybe the reason is, is for the same reason that nobody else had either. Why? Because these things are spiritually discerned. The same way Peter figured this out is not because he was smarter and more biblically illiterate than everybody else. It's because the Holy Spirit revealed these things to him. And so they see it, okay? Um, uh, the disciples are beginning to see who Jesus is, but they still are like, I, I, don't, I don't get the fact that, that you're supposed to die, that you're supposed to suffer. In the other accounts of this passage, when, when uh, Peter gives the confession of who Jesus is, do you remember what happens? Luke doesn't tell us. But in the other ones, um, uh, when Peter says, you are the Christ, then Jesus says, I'm, I've come, I'm going to be suffering, I'm going to die, and, and, and that's what's going to happen. And then what does Peter do? He says, that'll never happen, Jesus. We'd never let that happen. Um, we're going we're to protect you. Don't talk that way. You're going to discourage everybody, right? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because the things that you were saying are not the things of God. They're the things of the devil, okay? Um, we, don't, we don't see that passage in, in Luke, but that's exactly what happened. They're beginning to see, they're beginning to see that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet they still think he's a different kind of Messiah, but he's the opposite of that. And man, here's the deal. That's the other great offense of Christianity. 
not only the exclusivity of Christianity, the fact that Jesus is something different, but this crazy idea that the Messiah has come to suffer and to die and to go to the grave and then be raised again. It seems crazy, even perverse in some people's minds to imagine that God would actually kill his own son, require the death of his own son. So much so that, that there are commentators out there, liberal commentators who talk about how the traditional view of Christianity in terms of the atonement is cosmic child abuse, right? How could God, the God that we believe in, ever require the death of his own child? It's, it's awful to believe in something like that. What sort of awful, archaic God would demand blood payment for sin? Isn't God bigger than that? Isn't he more noble than that? Isn't he above all this, our silly sins that we have down here on earth? But here's the deal. To save through defeat, to bring life through death, to exalt through humility, to bless through sacrifice, that is who the Messiah is. That is what the Messiah was meant to do. That is the Messiah who was foretold for hundreds and thousands of years before his coming. And again, we might feel like they were crazy not to connect the dots until we look at our own lives and we realize that, man, we don't connect those dots very well often either. The truth is, I think it's sort of normal to reject that picture of Jesus. That would be the normal thing to do. The problem is it's the wrong thing to do. In terms of our human understanding, none of this makes any sense. The world rejects the grace of God. It rejects the idea that God's son has to die to save you and to save me. It wants a system based on works and morality and religious observance. And I'm a decent person because then I can give you something, God. You tell me what to do and I'll do it and I can earn this salvation. You'll owe me something. But to accept a gift, to receive salvation as a gift, to be adopted into God's family by his grace, man, that just seems goofy. Like, it doesn't seem like it makes any sense. Like, what am I supposed to do? Just sit here. It may be foolish, but that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. And so kind of to close it, we come to this place. Who do you say that I am? That's the question that Jesus asks his disciples. Who do you say that I am? That is the most important question that anyone will ever be asked. Okay? You the disciples, people on the other side of the world, people who live next door to you. Who do you say Jesus is? And here's the deal. You can't just give any old answer. You cannot just accept Jesus in any old way. You have to come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. You must accept him for who he says he is, not for who the world says he is. Jesus is a prophet. Not just because he speaks the word of God, but in his case, because he is the word of God. He is God's message to the world. Jesus is the message of God 
to a lost humanity. Jesus is a prophet and he is the Messiah, but we have to understand what that Messiahship entails. And that is that the sinless son of God comes into the world, dies for the ungodly, and then exchanges his righteousness for our sin because of his great love for us. Not based on any works of our own, but based solely in the love and mercy of God. That's who the Messiah is, and that's the gospel that we believe in. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we we come to you now praying for our country. God, we have prayed over the course of, of this pandemic, over the course of this election season, that you would bring healing, that you would bring peace, God, that you would bring a sense of unity to our country. God, we feel as though um, in our sin, we are in as bad a place as we have been. Father, and so we call out to you and we beg you for your mercy on these things. God, we ask that you would bring health, bring unity, bring peace. God, but we also recognize that we don't want peace on our terms. Just like these people that we're reading about, God. If we cannot accept the truth for the truth, then God, we ask you to chasten us. We ask you to bring us to a true knowledge of who you are. God, don't leave us in our sin. Don't leave us in our ignorance. Don't leave us in our rebellion. But God, draw us to yourself. We pray that you would do that gently and mercifully. God, we pray that you would do that in a way uh, that, that um, God, we would not experience um, suffering and pain um, because of. And yet, God, we ask that you would do it no matter what. God, that you would bring our own hearts, our own church. God, that you would bring our own nation um, to a true knowledge of who you are. Father, we need to know your son, Jesus, to know him deeply and truly. God, he is the only answer for our country. Political parties are not going to do it. Political leaders are not going to do it. Father, unless we are turned to your son, Jesus, in faith and repentance, unless we are um, living our lives according to the calling of, of him on our lives, God, uh, there is no hope. So we pray that for ourselves. We pray that for a church. We pray that for our nation. Father, have mercy on us. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
that you would be in particular prayer um, for uh, our nation um, over the next couple of days, certainly, um, and, and extending past that. Um, I, I read a quote from a, from a brother who was in seminary with me. He's a pastor in Kentucky, and he made he's a history guy and, and, and uh, very versed in, in the Puritans and the Reformation era and all these things like that. And he said, uh, he made a comment online, and he said, man, if, if the things that had happened in our country had happened in any other generation, I feel like there would have been um, a brokenness and people would have been on their knees in prayer and there would have been this nationwide calling for prayer uh, in a way that that he said, I don't feel like I'm seeing right now. Uh, and, I, and I thought to myself and I said, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, we're not seeing that. Um, and I believe that, that that's significant. Um, it may be significant of the symptoms of our illness as a nation, um, but it is certainly um, 
man, what we need, what we are called to, um, and we know that God works through those things. Okay. And so I'd ask you to pray, um, uh, pray more than just your normal amount of prayer, um, over the next few days as, as we continue to, to see the way, uh, things play out. So, uh, other than that, um, uh, we'll see you next week. Um, it's good to see you. Good to be in, in, uh, physical presence, um, with each other again and, uh, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.